This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and as you know, I'm a huge fan of musical theater, and I'm very passionate about talent within this medium and love illuminating that talent, whether it be a musical theater performer or an exciting composer and lyricist. And there's a name that I kept hearing over and over, like a whisper in the wind that got louder and louder. And then I heard some of her music and I was transported, transformed, and I just knew we had to have her on the show. Her name is Britta Johnson, and she has been heralded by the Toronto Star as Canadian Musical Theatre's Next Great Hope. Her work has been described as having a Sondheim quality by the National Post, and Now Magazine has described her as a real star. Britta Johnson is a writer, composer, and lyricist based in Toronto, and her original musical, Life After, had an extended, multiple-door award-winning run at the Canadian Stage Company before playing at the Old Globe Theatre in San Diego, so the American debut of the musical, and most recently, the prestigious Goodman Theatre in Chicago, where it garnered rave reviews. Her other writing credits include, with her sister Annika Johnson, Dr. Silver, A Celebration of Life Outside the March, Musical Stage Company, for which they received a Dora nomination. And it's currently being developed at South Coast Rep in California. Till Then, which was performed by Eclipse Theatre Company this past summer in Toronto, is how I first came to know about Britta. More on that later. Brantwood, Theatre Sheridan, which won a Dora Award. Jacob Tutu, YTP Dora nomination. Trap Door, Theatre Sheridan. With Sarah Farb, Kelly V. Kelly, Musical Stage Company, Canadian Stage, winner of the Playwrights Guild of Canada's Best New Musical Award. Wow. Reframed, Musical Stage Company, Art Gallery of Ontario, Dora nominated. And with Catherine Cullen, Stupid Head, I love that title, Dora nomination. Her upcoming projects include the world premiere of Kelly v. Kelly at the Canadian Stage and a new project in development with the Stratford Festival. Britta was the inaugural crescendo artist with Toronto's Musical Stage Company. And I want to explain what that means. That includes a commitment to produce three of her musicals in three years, which really is unprecedented in this country. And if that weren't enough, she was named one of 50 to watch by the Broadway Women's Fund of America in 2020. Britta Johnson, from a very young age, has been described as a musical theater prodigy whose talent is profound. She is like an alchemist of sorts, transforming and creating art through a seemingly magical process. As such, she is an inspiration, illuminating a path for all artists. I'm so intrigued and can't wait to learn more. Britta Johnson, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Britta, I first became aware of you, as mentioned, when I heard your magnificent song, The Tree, which was part of the song cycle, Till Then, 
produced beautifully by Andrew Seok and the Eclipse Theatre Company. And uh, my daughter, Lily Liebrach, who just graduated from Sheridan's Musical Theatre Program and is a huge fan of yours, was in that show. She's on her way to NYU to do a master's in musical theatre and to do other cool things in New York. And she was in that production and in that beautiful number. And I saw the show four nights in a row. (laughs) Yes, a, a good audience member. And Every time I heard your song, The Tree, I was blown away. It was just so hauntingly beautiful that I I really couldn't get it out of my mind. And that's when my daughter, Lily, said, Mom, it's Britta Johnson. She is the one. So that's how I came to know of you. And I just want to play the song for our listeners right now so that they can hear what I heard. And I wish that you all could have seen what I saw. It was so beautiful. Britta, can you tell us what was the inspiration behind your beautiful song, The Tree? Well, I remember it was in 2020 when Andrew approached me about this project, kind of at the height of COVID isolation. And he said uh, it was a, he was trying to make a song cycle about the many experiences that were coming from this unprecedented time we were walking through. And I had just been speaking to a collaborator about this book called The Overstory by Richard Powers which is a lot about nature and trees and the way that they communicate with one another. And actually, I wrote the song as a pitch for a different show and then changed a lot of the lyrics And when Andrew approached me because it just felt like exactly the offering I wanted to make in this time because the beautiful, incredible thing about trees is that they're secretly very interconnected. And though it looks like they stand alone, they have really kind of mystical ways of interacting with one another and kind of taking care of one another. And it was a metaphor that really resonated with me in this time when we had no contact with each other, but we had found different ways of letting one another know that we weren't standing alone, that we were standing alone, but never lonely was kind of the hook of the song. And that was kind of the offer. I, I, was, I wanted to write a song about how lonely I'd been feeling or how frustrated I'd been feeling or how scared I was feeling. But actually the offering I wanted to make was to this was one of kind of the divine way that nature actually takes care of us and the divine lesson that we were being invited to learn from this moment about our interconnectedness and what the many ways we can support each other, the many ways we need each other. And it was a kind of beautiful moment in history that we've maybe lost a little bit of in watching the ways we were taking care of one another. And that's kind of what the song is about. So using trees as this metaphor is all of us standing separately, but remaining connected. Wow. Britta, even last night when I was finishing up the script for the show today, I was bawling my eyes out when I heard the song. And I have heard it many, many times. (laughs) I always have this reaction. And I notice in all of your music that your music just feels so ethereal. It just touches your heart and your soul. It gets right in there. And we're going to hear more of that beautiful music throughout the show. But without further ado, let's all have a listen to The Tree by Britta Johnson. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. That was so beautiful. That was just so, (laughs) so beautiful. What was it like to watch that being performed? that night? Because I believe you were there one of those four nights. I was. It's always kind of an out-of-body experience to see your sh- your music getting performed, you know? Yeah. It's hard to describe. I'm always very moved by it. I always feel very, it's amazing to feel part of a community. It's, it's such a privilege to have your work performed. It's usually, composing is a very, can be a very lonely thing. Yes. So 
finishing, completing that circle when you can actually share it and be in community with it is always a pretty profound thing. And especially, I mean, I had forgotten about this song. It was so long ago and it was written at such a, honestly, a very difficult moment, I think for all of us, but certainly for me. And it was a pretty profound thing to be in a room again with people. I was sitting next to one of my dear friends who I hadn't seen in a very long time, who also works in this industry and seeing bodies on stage and, you know, (laughs) making music together is one of the very best things about being alive. And I was very, very moved and excited to get to be there again. Uh, It's hard, hard Mm. to describe. And as you hear it, like when I write that, you just heard the demo track, which is just my (laughs) voice multi-track. That's usually so much of my experience of making music is just me, me with my kind of crummy microphone layering my own voice. And it's pretty cool when, when the masters do it. It sounds pretty incredible to me. And so in addition to being a composer and a lyricist and a book writer, you're also a beautiful singer. I have to say that because you truly are. I want to go back to the beginning, Britta, because you really are a musical theater wonderkind. And it all really began for you at the Stratford Festival, where your mother and late father were musicians in the Stratford Festival's orchestra pit and trumpeteers in the festival's iconic pre-show fanfares. And I loved hearing about how on nights when your parents couldn't get a babysitter, you and your two older sisters, Annika and Eliza, would sit backstage in the green rooms listening on loudspeakers to the show. So I was thinking, how many Oklahomas and Hamlets did you get to hear? I mean, wow. So many. I have seen Man of La Mancha more than anyone on earth. I'm certain of it. (laughs) Can you take us back to what that must have been like backstage as a little kid, breathing in theatre at the Stratford Festival from such a young age? It was certainly a very unique upbringing that I kind of didn't know was unique at the time. You know, when you're young, you're getting to know the world as you grow. So I kind of, I lived in this bizarre way where I thought that's what it was like for everybody, for all kids, like just this incredible interconnected community of artists that I had access to at all time. I I perhaps took it for granted because it's all I'd ever known. And so many of my friends' parents did the same thing. And and it was so normal to be at a gathering of really incredible storytellers and musicians. But yeah, there's it, it's hard to describe. It was magical. It was, and it felt like anything was possible. And, and seeing art making on that scale as a regular part of life is a very inspiring thing. You know, I didn't even, it it felt like making music and storytelling was like breathing for everyone around me. So it felt like a very natural thing for me to go into it. It would have been more bizarre for my parents, perhaps if I told them I was being an engineer. (laughs) Though now that I don't have a dental plan, I wonder if that would have been (laughs) a wiser option. But uh, yeah, it was, it mostly what was incredible about it was the community. It was this really magical time at Stratford where a lot of families had built their, of artists had built their lives there. So both the community of the generation above me and the community of my peers uh, were yes. all parts of this world of theater. And Stratford makes pretty magical things happen. Like theater on that scale is a pretty, uh, pretty incredible thing. And uh, that means that a lot of the shows in the canon walked me through many of the biggest chapters in my life, in my life. Like I can think about what was happening for me the season they did Into the Woods, what was happening for me the season they did Oklahoma. Like it's been the soundtrack sort of to my entire experience of growing up. (laughs) When your father passed away from cancer, and I'm so sorry about that, back in 2005, you found solace in the music of Stephen Sondheim at the Stratford Mm -hmm. Festival you've just mentioned in which you've described this beguiling production of Into the Woods, which was playing at the Avon Theatre. And I believe you saw that production 14 times. 
And <laughs> well, very lucky you, because what a show. I also would yeah. think that score must have permeated your very being. It's one of the most elaborately plotted musicals of all time with four major intersecting plot lines, 20 separate speaking roles. And what keeps it all together, of course, is that magnificent score, which some people mm-hmm. might hear as atonal the first time they hear it. But then something <laughs> happens and it becomes addictive and it gets into your bloodstream and it's everything. You crave the music. So I'm just oh, yes. wondering, what was it about the music of Stephen Sondheim in that particular piece that drew you in and brought you so much solace. It's a funny thing, you know, growing up around the theater the way that I did is I didn't even really identify as a music theater kid. It was just a very normal part of my life. I didn't think it was what I was going to go into. I loved to play piano and music was a really normal part of my life, but music theater wasn't the thing for me yet. And I remember watching that show and the way it made me feel, uh, at perhaps, you know, the loneliest moment of my life. The first time something's kind of taken from you before you're ready. And it was the first show my dad didn't play because he passed away and seeing my mom in the pit and what that show says about loss and community and responsibility and the unknowability of life and human yearning and connection. Like I've just never seen something so succinctly cover so much about the human experience. And it's a really special thing to watch a piece of art that makes you feel less alone, you know, and feeling like that is something that's possible, that you can create things that can make that for audiences. And the (laughs) ephemeral kind of unknowable quality of music is what makes it possible in that show that like, there's something, it can't stay earthbound because the music is carrying this whole mysterious world that kind of gets us even closer to knowing how to talk about these things that I still don't think we know how to talk about. So I remember sitting there and thinking, wow, like, I want to do this. I want to make this for people. I want to make this experience for people. And that's kind of when I started to write. And I think Sondheim specifically has a way as a lyricist of of taking a whole world of feeling about mm. very profound, big life things and somehow boiling it down to like a single rhyming couplet that somehow feels like it's existed forever. You know, mm-hmm. songwriting is a pretty, can be a magnificent thing. I think. I think it can provide a lot of soul as it did for me, uh, certainly. And, and Sondheim is a songwriter who has done that for me again and again and again. So if I can get even close (laughs) to creating that experience for my audiences, even once I will feel I have, uh, achieved my goal. (laughs) Well, you do it time and time again, and you do it. And and in all the pieces that we're going to be playing today, but even last night, I just went on sort of a binge listening of your music. And I I was like, again, again, oh my God. It was after that experience at age 14 that you decided to become a musical theater composer and you started writing your musical life after when you were just 18 years old and a participant Mm -hmm. in the Paprika Festival, which was a youth-led festival and an incubator program for young theater artists. Can you tell us more about the realization of knowing what you wanted to do with the rest of your life at the age of 14, where people barely know, you know, anything (laughs) at all? (laughs) I mean, that's a cleaner version of perhaps how it played out. (laughs) I think I perhaps discovered it more slowly, but I did know I wanted to exist in this world that I'd grown up in, the the kind of communal art making that theater provides. I knew that would be my home. So yeah, it would, I don't know if I'm answering your question. (laughs) It was, uh, it certainly happened organically. And I always knew, I, I just, even before I knew it was what I was going to do with my life, it seemed to be the thing I sought out, like the very first thing I did when I moved to Toronto was seek out opportunities with other young writers to make stuff with. It's kind of where I feel most at home in my own life. And 
where things somehow make the most sense to me. So I guess that's what we need to seek out because <laughs> life often doesn't make a lot of sense. So <laughs> you also worked hard at it, though, even in your piano playing, you saw your two older sisters really dedicating themselves to the art of playing the piano. But you took it really seriously, really driving yourself. You tell us a little bit because I think that people have to know that it's hard work. Yes, to be a Mozart, to be a Sondheim, to be, I'm going to say, a Britta Johnson. <laughs> you know, part of it is is inspiration, yes. But there's a lot of hard work involved. So can you tell us just even about the piano? Because I think you really dedicated yourself to it. I did. I mean, my parents set up this incredible template. There's nothing like growing up with musicians to understand how much discipline it takes to be a musician, that it is a big piece of it is what comes to you naturally, but that's not actually it at all. Like it's 1% the luck of having the talent and 99% just discipline and hard work and sticking with it, even when it feels difficult. So I really credit that to my parents. I think if I could have quit piano earlier, I would have. But in our house, it was just, you weren't allowed to do anything until you practiced piano that day. And I think yes. that they were very wise in that, that it like, it's the greatest gift they gave me is that I have the ability to play piano, which has given me the most joy in, in anything I know how to do. And even now I sometimes am a piano teacher and that's the thing when someone's going to quit, I always give them a bit of a speech like you're not going to regret <laughs> sticking with it. Like it's okay if it doesn't feel natural right now, you're going to get over the hill. <laughs> and there's that moment when you're learning an instrument where suddenly the world opens up and you can play things that you love, which takes time. You have to play a lot of things that kind of suck at the beginning, but it was, I definitely credit yes. my parents to that. And it was also being the third in line and watching my sisters be really good at something before me and wanting to be able to do it too. But certainly, yeah, it was a very disciplined household when it came to piano playing. Uh, we all had to practice for a certain amount of time every day before something was going to happen. And sometimes I say that to people and feels like I'm telling a horror story, but it's actually kind of the greatest thing my parents did for me and my sisters too, who, who continue to inspire me. It's very cool to be the youngest sibling because there are always a few steps ahead doing kind of incredible things that I want to be able to do too. <laughs> wow. Wow. Do you teach online the piano or is it always in person? I used to teach in person. And then over the pandemic, I, you know, started to teach a lot more online. Wow. And in fact, I'm wow. not doing it much right now because it seems like the industry's kind of opened back up and I, I don't have time, but I do love to You're teach. You're busy, <laughs> but it's a yeah. nice thing in between engagements, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> My supervising producer, Mag Ruffman, as I was describing the show for her this morning, mentioned to me that she knew your parents Jerry and Holly, and remembers when they met in 1989 and what a love story they had. And the show they were all in together was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum at the St. <laughs> Lawrence Center for the Arts. And she talked about how madly in love they were and how your mom, Holly, shared a dressing room with Mag because all the other musicians were guys and she was the only, uh, your, your mom was the only other female. And uh, so I just had to mention that to you. Is it a small so world cool. or what? <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell my mom. Well, she'll listen. Hi, mom. Yeah, she's the coolest. Yes, hi, That's mom. really cool. I mean, it's legendary. <laughs> Funny thing happened on the way before. It's like the way that shows kind of mark... <laughs> in our family, the big things in our life. We all know about that legendary production of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum where our parents got together. Isn't that Which cool? is a funny show. That. Like that's, It's funny that it was that show. Not the most romantic show in the world, to be honest. <laughs> We're going to go on a short commercial break. So much to talk about. When we come back, I want to talk to you more about the composer that you've been the most compared to, and that is Stephen Sondheim. We'll be right back after this short break. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. 
In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I'm having a pretty incredible conversation here with acclaimed composer, lyricist, and book writer, Britta Johnson. Britta, I mentioned this a little bit, but it's so true. You have been compared to Stephen Sondheim, and you have said that Sondheim is essentially the reason that you write musicals. And you've said, I think he somehow makes a story feel more truthful by making people sing, which I used to think was maybe impossible. His music is so evocative. His lyrics are smart. And the stories he chooses to tell move me so completely. And really, this is really how you have been described. Like a lot of your music is very Sondheim-esque. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's impossible to agree with. I mean, that is certainly like my like reason for doing it, like what I try to stay connected to when I write it is to just try to tell the truth or as close to the truth as I can at all times, even in things that are larger than life. It's still, there's still truth in that, even in comedic things. And I think that he modeled that for me, but you know, that's like comparing yourself to Shakespeare. I can't do that, (laughs) but 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 I am, we can, listen, I'm I'm honored when people say that to me. And, uh, and I then sometimes say like, well, if only you could hear, all the rough drafts, uh, because it's never an easy road. But you know, I do know I work very hard and I work hard to try to to remain truthful. It's easier to lie in a song than it is to tell the truth. You know, even if the character is not telling the truth, you know what I mean? Like truth with a capital T. And it's, I think my love for his work that makes that the driving goal, I guess. (laughs) Where I see similarities is I think there can be an entire world in one of his lyrics in one line of a song and you do the same thing. The whole world is there in the tree and in a song that they're about to hear called Poetry, also from Life After, your beautiful musical, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I just wanted to ask you about some of your other musical influences and inspirations. So we know Sondheim. I know one is George Gershwin, Joni Mitchell, Claude Debussy, and Victor Borga. That's the one I want to ask you about. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I know. That one stands out. I mean, when I was a kid, um, I was a ham. Like I've always... <laughs> always identified as a funny person. I, I don't know if that's shown up in this interview. When I was a kid, I used to, like, I was a very serious pianist. And my dad would say to me, like, well, I guess you have to grow up to be the next Victor Borga because I couldn't decide between making people laugh or playing my Debussy. Wow. And he gave me a box set of these VHSs of Victor Borga, who's this <laughs> iconic concert pianist slash comedian. Like, there's this one, one of my favorite skits of his, he's like, playing a piano that's slowly falling into a pool or like he'll get his pages upside down like it's old school slastics comedy when I was like seven eight nine I was obsessed I thought like that's as good as art has ever been and you know it's funny because now I write very serious shows mostly about loss but you know we exist in multitudes (laughs) that's so great that's so great let's talk about the musical for a moment that I think really has made you famous so I just want everyone to understand this 
you are the composer of this musical. You are the lyricist and the writer of it. And it's called Life After. And it's been described as exquisite from start to finish, utter perfection. It was first produced by Musical Stage Company, Canadian Stage, and Young Street Theatricals. It's been described as the epitome of a well-constructed musical. It was written, and I quote, Johnson's remarkable, poignant score binds with a moving story, creating a musical that is concise, complete, perfect, end quote. And this music really lived in you. You embodied it for a long time from the Fringe Festival to the Canadian stage. Then, as we mentioned earlier, to its first production in San Diego and then most recently in Chicago at the Goodman Theatre, where I want to tell everyone it acquired superb reviews and great acclaim. (laughs) Can you tell us about your brainchild life after and how it all evolved? Because this is like a life's work and you did this in your 20s. So it's pretty cool. I know. Well, it's really, I always say it's kind of grown up with me because it really has. It's marked every chapter of my growing up. And it's kind of a show about growing up. So it feels appropriate. And it, it means like uh, there's always new things to refine because you always learn more about what it means to kind of be alive the longer you do it. So it's a show about loss. It's a show about a teenager who loses her father, which, you know, is is a story I share coming of age through grief. But it's not autobiographical by any means. But I was really curious about what music could offer to this experience I didn't know how to talk about. It's like a kind of heightened magical way of living when you're grieving someone, the way you exist in past and present and speculated future, the way that it's as absurd as it is devastating, the absurdity of the fact that regular life continues and you have regular life priorities alongside, you know, the biggest existential questions you've ever asked being are happening in your head. So I think music has the ability to carry all of that and all of those idiosyncrasies. And so it started out as just a few songs. Um, it was a few years after I'd lost my dad and I didn't even know it was going to be about a dad. Actually, I just lost a friend of mine and I was existing again at funerals with, you know, tiny sandwiches and having conversations I didn't know how to have. And and it seemed to kind of sing to me for the first time. So it started as a few songs and then very slowly over a long period of time, it grew into this show that has continued to evolve and continue to kind of grow up with me as I evolve. It's really been the greatest privilege of my life working on this show. It's connected me with the most incredible collaborators. And uh, yeah, there's always new things to say about loss and that's what it's about. So that wasn't succinct, but that that's everything I have to say about <laughs> it right now. <laughs> what was it like, Britta, after this pandemic? I know we, we're still in it sort of, but it seems like we're going to the theater again, well, thank goodness, to be yeah. in the audience on opening night at the Goodman Theater in Chicago, seeing this magnificent work of your sort of heights that maybe you never even imagined possible. What was that like for you? There are no words. To quote the song, I think I said to you, it's kind of bigger and brighter and wider than I ever knew. And actually, I had just gotten over COVID for opening. I had I had COVID the week before opening. I didn't even know if I'd make it. And I did. And uh, I also didn't think the show would ever happen again. It was even a year ago, so hard to imagine being back. It was so hard to remain hopeful. And we had productions canceled and I didn't know what the way forward would be for a new show. That's kind of bizarre and a bit sad. I didn't know that there would be an audience for that. And I sat there in the audience with my mom on one side and my godfather on the other. And it was uh, definitely one of the best moments of my life is really all I can say. My ego was somehow less present than it usually is on an opening because it was like somehow outshone by the level of gratitude I was feeling to be back. 
I didn't think I'd be back. Wow. So wow. I guess that's one of the rare, weird little gifts of this COVID experience is it's kind of reconnected me with how lucky I feel to get to do what I love and that that kind of is enough. Yes. So it was a pretty special night, honestly. <laughs> well, congratulations on all of the success. It's incredible. Thank you. What was your writing process for life after and for everything you read? Like I've, I've read so much about how you act out and you sing out parts of the dialogue and you use the space and you embody it. <laughs> and, you, and I was going to ask you, do you prefer writing alone or collaborating? But I was thinking when you're doing the acting out and the singing, you probably want to do it with someone else there. I don't know. But what is that writing <laughs> process like for you to create really a masterpiece like this? What does it look like? Oh, I mean, it's so different for every project for life after it's incredibly non-linear. And, and I say I work alone, but I really don't like every director I've worked with and every cast has given me so much. And specifically one of my central writing partners is my sister, Annika Johnson. We kind of share a brain and she's been my collaborator and dramaturg on this from the beginning. So usually the first step is me looking like I've lost my mind in my office, stomping around and muttering to myself and gently crying. You know, that's a big part of it. And then the next one is usually I show her what the stomping led to and we stomp and cry together, you know, um, as a kind of first line of defense. And uh, and when we write together, it's a lot of, you know, we're both pianists, so we switch off on the piano and one of us wow. will be singing and muttering and conjuring and the other one will be playing. And sometimes we'll kick each other off the piano mid-song if one of us gets an idea. It's like, it's hard to describe. It's very organic and non-linear and often looks a lot like not working, you know, <laughs> writing a song is a weird thing where you, it takes a while to take shape. And then usually for me, it drops all at once, but, uh, it's a wow. lot of kind of staying present and, um, muttering to myself. My next door neighbor, I'm sure thinks I, I'm <laughs> out of my mind. There's no question. <laughs> so my piano's right at a window. So he's seen some stuff. <laughs> I also mentioned that you were commissioned to write three musicals in a three-year period. Like that in itself is just like, it's just awe-inspiring. And sometimes to keep track of what you're doing when you're working on different projects, you actually create playlists so that you can just sort of live in the world of that music. Can you tell us a little more about that? Because that's so cool for writers to hear. Oh, yeah. It's actually something I learned. It's something Annika did before me, but I have stolen where... Yeah, I'll often make an iTunes or a Spotify playlist of kind of like, what is the texture of this show? What is the vibe? What's the energy like? Or what was the character listening to? So for Life After, it's lots of kind of watery, ephemeral, impressionist music, a lot of like early Joni Mitchell that I'll listen to. So sometimes just listening to stuff that sounds like it when you're stuck. For me, I like listening to something and then sitting at the piano and trying to figure out like, what did that composer do to make it sound that way? And for other shows, you know, Dr. Silver is this big show I've written with my sister where it's a lot of electronic music and pop music. So that's a way more fun playlist. And sometimes when we get stuck, we just show each other songs that we love and talk about what we love about them. Not to steal wow. or copy, but, you know, identify what is the thing in essence wow. that you love about it and then see how that can translate to the world you're trying to build for your character. But play, making a playlist has become a kind of constant step in my process, which I like a lot. <laughs> wow. A very common struggle in musical theater is how you go from story to song. The leap from story to song is an eternal struggle, sometimes for the audience even, in musical theater. <laughs> no but <kidding>. your, <laughs> your structure, however, is truly seamless. And your songs give your character such realness and authenticity, and they strike such a chord that it gives the story even more weight and credibility. How do you achieve this? Ooh, um... The secret is I found if a song isn't going well, like if I can't find it, 
usually it means I've started it at the wrong place. Like it's like trying to lift off at the wrong moment. It depends on the, you know, for shows that are a bit more naturalistic, Life After is about a family. So I kind of cheated because the music rarely stops in that show. So I don't have to deal with that awkward moment. But in the places where, where the singing does come out of nowhere, I try to start by thinking about like, what is the thing this person would say? And why is it that they're starting to sing now? Like, what is the energy of that and the rhythm of that that translates to music? Because usually you have to be specific to choose the moment of liftoff. It can't be a kitchen sink moment. It can't be a casual moment. It has to be a moment where things become more heightened. And and generally my rule is the first thing out of their mouths is uh, what the character would say, you know, and try to find a rhythm that imitates speech and use the idiosyncrasies of human speech, the very specific patterns, the way that people talk to create their musical character as much as their character in text, you know? the two need to hold hands. So one of the biggest songs in Life After is sung by the mom towards the end of the show. And uh, I couldn't find it. And so I just was trying to talk like her. What would she say? And the line she kept saying is, I'm sorry, I had to. I'm sorry, I had to. So I just started the song by her saying it to that rhythm, finding I'm sorry, I had to is the melody she would say that to and she would repeat it. And that's what the character would say. And usually once I crack that, the song can lift Mm. off from there. But if you've chosen the wrong moment of liftoff, usually you don't find the song is what I found. And sometimes I'll spend a long time writing the wrong song before I write the right one. <laughs> and you feel it, right? So you know it in your gut and not everybody does know that, but you do. And so that's <laughs> yes. why you get it. And not to harp on the Stephen Sondheim, but I want to say that your music exhibits the harmonic complexity of Sondheim's best, but with melodies that are perhaps more hummable. I talked before about atonals sometimes, although you get used to it and you crave it. But your music is so hummable. Like I hummed the tree for weeks after seeing that show. And like Sondheim, your lyrics just cut as deep as the heart-wrenching music that accompanies them. And I have to say this word, like you, and not that I can compare myself to you, but as a journalist, I thought I have to find the word that describes what this beautiful artist does. And the word I kept coming back to was holiness. I think people feel a sense of holiness, almost like being in church or synagogue or any spiritual place when they hear your music. And I felt this way as well. And then again, very intensely, when my daughter pointed out your song poetry from Life After. And I would like to play this now for our listeners, because this piece also just sent me over the moon. Can you tell us about the inspiration behind your beautiful song, Poetry? Whoa, you're making me tear up, frankly, because you're being so kind. I have to remember these for some pull quotes if I ever have a website. (laughs) Thank you. It's very generous of you. Poetry is the final song in Life After, but actually one of the first ones I wrote for it as a standalone song, actually, pretty soon after this friend of mine had died. It wasn't about my dad originally. It was about that experience of loss and not having the words for it, but understanding what it was acquainting me with, which was something devastating, but also huge and beautiful and mysterious. Um, So I didn't have the words for it. And that is kind of what the song is about. So it's not having the words, which is really the landing point of life after there's no, there's no conclusion. Life just continues. We leave the character at the very beginning of a very complex journey, but her landing point has to be one of kind of opening herself to the great mystery of grief. And that's kind of the landing point of the story. So that's where the song ended up, though it wasn't initially attached to this show, but it felt like kind of what the show is about. Wow. Let's all have a listen to Poetry by Britta Johnson. 
These days I've thought of... Oh my God, that was so beautiful. <laughs> Thank wow. you. And I should say that singer was uh, Sophie Hearn, who I worked with at the Old Globe in San Diego, and she's just one of the best musicians I've ever met. So shout out to Sophie Hearn. <laughs> wow, wow. When can audiences see this production again? I know this production has lots of life. I'm hoping it gets to Broadway. <laughs> Are there any cool plans for yet another production of this beautiful show? I mean, I, I think that's the ultimate goal. There are a lot of really smart people trying to make that happen. And it's a whole new world, the American theater industry. And, and a show having a life this long is new to me. So I think there's many factors that get a show to New York. Yes. But I yes. do know there's people who I really trust and who are very smart, who are working to make that happen. And that's always been kind of the hope. And I have nothing to share right now. But if if, <laughs> if it happens, I'd be so happy. And I can't I, wait. I, can't I told wait. my friends that if it did, I'd buy a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. And I want to talk about your other productions, but there's just something, I, there's just more that I just have to ask about this. And one is what it was like even to be back in that rehearsal room after COVID when you, you were doing Life After in the States and you would cry listening to these wonderfully talented actors singing your brilliant songs. Like just that. Yeah. Just that. It's, I mean... It's hard to describe. It became a bit of a punchline in rehearsal how much I cried. Like, because it was also embarrassing because it looked like I was crying at like my own work, which I really wasn't. It was just uh, gratitude being back there. And you know, music for me is it's communal. I don't I don't love to make it by myself. And I um, I had forgotten it's been such a huge part of my life, such a huge part of who I am that I kind of wasn't very connected to, to be honest. Over over the pandemic, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to write so much stuff. What an opportunity. And I really didn't because so much of it for me is about like community and communication. And uh, yes, the best part of it is the collaboration that happens between you and a performer when they bring something to it that you never imagined. So I just like there wasn't input and I wasn't I had a lot of shame about my lack of output. So landing back in that room and feeling kind of back at home in kind of my body and my life was was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Wow. I hope I don't have to wow. go that long without doing it again. I'm just going to say one more thing and then I promise I'm going to leave this show. But oh, there's so much. When <laughs> Rihanna Marie Parham starred in the Chicago premiere of your play Life After, you said there was something about her singing the song Wallpaper, which I also listened to last night and bawled my eyes out. <laughs> And you said, I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life. What was it about her singing the song that you wrote that became so imprinted in your mind and heart and made it so unforgettable? It was so many things. A big part of it was, it was one of the very first songs taught in our very first workshop back. So The Return, it's a song that's been in the show since since our Fringe production. And, and truly, I've been so inspired by every person that's embodied that character. That song is kind of, it's a really big moment in the show of kind of a certain cracking open. And and so it was being back with it, but it was also she brought something really new to it. She's kind of a powerhouse. She kind of channels something <laughs> higher, I feel, when she sings. Like she, you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you know, like I've always music, I, I'm not a religious person, but music is as close as I get to spirituality for sure. I feel there's a certain thing channeled sometimes when it's right, right there. And that's what was happening when she sang that song. And that's what always happened when she sang that song. And you would feel it in the audience. And, and just, I was just, uh, yeah, I felt really privileged to be in the room with that and to be collaborating with her on that and creating that moment, truly. 
What are some tips for singers on how to interpret the text of the song? It reminds me of how the poet Denise Levertov once said, two girls discovered a secret in the line of poetry I had written that I never intended to put there. And that was so thrilling. Do you love when an actor finds that hidden meaning that you didn't even intend to put there? And what happens when they don't find that? What are your tips on how to get to the heart and soul of your song? Yeah, it's... um. It's kind of like the same rule for all art making, I think, is to try to get out of the way, you know, trust the music, trust the trust the information that's given to you in the music and the kind of, yeah, the ephemeral part of the music that you won't be able to put your finger on. You know, I I feel the amazing thing about music theater writing is that the music does so much of the work of storytelling that to really just spend some time trusting that and then you'll discover what needs to come with that. You know, I think Mm -hmm. sometimes some of the music theater performances that I feel less connected to are ones that put too much on already so much information. You know, there is truth in simplicity and there's truth in trusting what's been written. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't count for for my crummy songs, but, uh, (laughs) but like, I guess that's what I'd say is try to get out of the way. And that's for writing, that's for performing, that's for, I guess, uh, life. (laughs) Are you going to publish, Britta, this beautiful music so that people can audition with these songs and sing these (laughs) songs, these gorgeous songs? Is that in the works? I really hope so. You know, the show really isn't locked yet. I keep working on it every time there's a production. And I know the producers who are attached have dreams of further productions and development. But I think as soon as it's locked... I would love to get the music out there, truly. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than when when new people sing it. So I I think that'll definitely be something that happens. I can't say when, but yes. That's so cool. Can you tell us a little bit more just briefly about your show, Dr. Silver, at South Coast Rep in California? Yes. So we, um, this is a show that premiered in Toronto that my sister and I wrote that now is getting some further development. We've brought an incredible book writer on board named Nick Green, and we're kind of doing a a new take on it. There's not much I can say right now, but we had the privilege of being part of their Pacific Playwrights Festival last spring and kind of cracked open a new world for the show that we're going to continue to work on and hope to continue to share with audiences soon. You also just finished a workshop of the new adaptation of Jacob Tucci Meets the Hooded Fang with the Stratford Festival. And I'm going to just move on because I want to talk about how before the pandemic, you were on your way to mounting your upcoming show, Kelly v. Kelly, and you were on a roll hot on the heels of your musical life after U.S.'s premiere, as we've mentioned. And now I believe Kelly v. Kelly is going to be premiering in Toronto next June. What is this show all about? And can you tell us a little bit more about its creation? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Britta Johnson and her musical, Kelly versus Kelly, when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We 
are back and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740 and I'm here with composer and lyricist Britta Johnson and we were just talking about your upcoming musical Kelly versus Kelly. Can you tell us a bit more about how it all evolved? Absolutely. So I wrote this with an incredible book writer named Sarah Farb who I feel very lucky to call a friend and it's based on a kind of shocking true story about this mother and daughter in 1915. And this mother had her own daughter arrested and brought to court and tried for sneaking out and dancing. So we've created this sweeping kind of dance musical set in the underground dance clubs of New York City that's at its heart kind of about the generational divide between mothers and daughters at this incredible moment in history where there were Victorian mothers and flapper daughters and, uh, and what it meant to be a woman was changing really rapidly. So it's a really exciting moment to talk about these kind of, I think, timeless themes. Mothers and daughters forever will have, it is the most central, one of the most central relationships in your life and one of the most complex. And we hope to crack some of that open. And wow, we're so excited. It's finally happening. We've... uh, we're in meetings about it again and single tickets just went on sale yesterday so you can go on the Canadian Stage of Musical Stage website and buy them and and, and we're just like oh. I'm so excited and I'm so proud of this piece and it's been waiting in the wings for quite some time now. <laughs> well we're so lucky because we have a sneak peek from this fabulous new musical so without further ado we're going to have a listen to this beautiful new song called Eugenia at the Tango Club from Kelly v. Kelly. Here it is. Let's have a listen. Oh my God. I can't wait. That's so gorgeous. Oh my God. It's all so fabulous. Everyone. I just, oh my God. Can't wait for this one to see this in person and to see all of it. What is next for you, Britta? And what are you looking the most forward to? Oh, I'm just so thrilled to be working again. I can't even tell you. I'm actually about to leave for Sudbury to work on a production of Into the Woods, my very favorite show. (sighs) Mitchell Cushman is directing this kind of new take on it, and I'm associate directing with him and also playing one of the roles, and we'll be playing some piano, and that's all I'll tell for now, but I leave on Monday, and and I I just am really excited to get to spend the time with this. This this is my favorite show ever written, so I can't wait. uh, Oh my God, I just got the chills. I know, it's thrilling. It's it's a full circle moment, really. Lovely way to end the interview. uh, And beyond that, lots of writing coming down the pipe lots of projects we're launching kelly versus kelly the work on dr silver continues and you'll hear more about that very soon and uh our project with stratford and you know more for life after as well i hope i have some sessions with the director coming up so i'm just kind of at it and making stuff and i i couldn't be more thrilled and uh i feel back back in my own life you know <laughs> what is bliss for britta johnson mm, you know it's making music with people i love i guess that's it. Hope to do it for the rest of my life. (laughs) I think, and I'm not just saying this, I don't want to cry because I really feel this. I think you're probably one of the most important composer lyricists of this century. And I think that's going to become more and more obvious and apparent to people. And it really has been an honor to have you here. Truly. Well, thank you. You've made me cry. That's It's been a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having me and for listening to this music. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media? Oh, great question. I'm uh, very bad at setting up a website for my, (laughs) probably Instagram. You know what? Instagram. I'm Britta MC Johnson. I've got an open profile and I, I love to hear from people there. And if you have requests for sheet music, that's where you go. It's just me, (laughs) but uh, love to hear from you. That's awesome. I want to thank you so much for Britta being on the show today. It's really been an honor having you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
Each week we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or musician on the show. If you're a singer, please reach out to us. And if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. Also, what did you love about today's show? Are there any guests or topics you'd love us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? You can write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. All you have to do is search up Judy Lee Brack. And of course, you can follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful and esteemed guest, Britta Johnson, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, Lauren Kaminsky, producer and audio engineer, Nayira Amani, associate editor and video editor, Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer, Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.